0: And hopefully you all real do you all know that all of these materials you know one of the things we do is we go quickly and we put Bible verses up and i'm not I'm intentionally not trying to just speed throw Bible verses at you so you can't think about them. There was a, a famous delver in delver in prophecies on the television, and I think one of his goals was to spit out as many Bible references as he could per minute hoping nobody would actually ever check the references. All of this material is now on our website. It's called Covenant Theology Sunday School. You can either go to Resources Sunday School Covenant Theology. Just search on the website. All of the PowerPoints are there. Now all of the audio is there. Except for this week. Because I haven't done this week yet. But Tomorrow, this week, will be up. Um, and so, if you have any questions, I'm happy to help because this is uh, an important topic and it's also not a very easy topic. But one of the things that I hope you are getting is a taste of why theology is important and why theology must be practical and linked to Jesus and his work. Okay? And so, uh, these two things go together, and as a matter of fact, teaser, a few weeks from now, we're going to see how covenant theology affects the way we do evangelism, and how we should do evangelism. Okay, so, is everybody ready to go? Very good, Judy, I like that, that's good. Everybody can hear me? Y'all can hear me okay? I'm on? I've turned myself on? All right. Let me open us up then in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for all of the blessings You give to us in reminding us of Your covenant. And we ask, Lord, that You would um, encourage us, that You would teach us from Your Word, that we might be uh, witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ in our families, in our communities, and in our world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so what we have here now is... God has a plan for every part of your life is our Sunday school class. And this week we are going to look week six at what I call the bridge. We looked two weeks ago at the Old Testament and the unfolding of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament. We looked last week at the New Testament and the unfolding there. And now what we're going to see is that the Old and the New Testaments go together and they work to give the same message And I think one of the best ways to see this is how the Old Testament predicts the covenantal fulfillment in the New Covenant. And so, you know, I'd love books too much to actually tell you to do this, but metaphorically you can do it. As you look in your Bibles, you will turn and about two-thirds of the way in, you will see the end of Malachi. And usually, before Malachi, you'll have a blank page or two or a thing that says the New Testament or an introduction. In some level, metaphorically, I want you to rip it out of your Bible. Because we are Christians of one book. The Old and the New Testament go together. They have the same message. But remember, there is a progression of that message in the way it's revealed. It is one book. Everybody with me so far? All right. so just... Somebody quick off the top of their head. Where do you think we should start? Okay, let's start with review. That's good. Alright. It's 3 a.m. 2 a.m. 2.15. Class, what are the elements of a covenant? These are the four main elements of a covenant. This is what we are looking for. Now, remind me again, why are we looking for these elements? Why don't we just get out a computer and Google search within the Bible and look every place for the word covenant? It doesn't always say covenant. And so when we study the Bible, we study the substance of the Bible. We don't take things out of context. We don't just look for words and just do word studies. We want to make sure that we find the substance of a covenant. So then we looked at this covenant of grace and we looked for our friends, the elements. Who are the parties? Class, God, and Christ. Right? What was the condition to be a part of the covenant of grace? No, that's the covenant of works. But I'm glad you remember that. That's true. That's the condition of the covenant works. Faith in Christ. What was the promise? That God is always our God. What? And that we have the forgiveness of sins. Also eternal life. And what is the penalty of the covenant of grace? None. Why? God always fulfills. This is the covenant of grace. This is what we are looking for. Now, you remember we said, How do we deal with conditions in the covenant of grace? We've grown up learning all the time about how God's love is unconditional. And that's true, I guess. Does God love Satan? Why not? And he rebelled, right? So Satan didn't do something. He didn't meet a condition. So there is some sense in which God's love is not unconditional. But if you are in Christ, can you do things to take yourself out of Christ? No. In that sense, God's love is unconditional. It is unconditional when it is founded upon the condition that Jesus has fulfilled. Do you see that? And that's why, with a straight face, we can answer this question yes. Do you see that? So don't let someone tie you in knots trying to figure this out because what people will try to do is they will push the unconditional nature of God and they will say to you, oh, you could be a Christian and cheat on your wife. Oh, you could be a Christian and rob a bank. Oh, you could be a Christian and blaspheme all the time because God's love is unconditional. No, it's not. It's unconditional in Christ. You have to be in Christ. And then others will say, oh, well, there are conditions to be met. And so you need to work and you need to do, and it's not just enough to have faith in Christ. You need to go to church every week in order to be saved. You need to give in order to be saved. You need to read your Bible in order to be saved. You need to do this and that. And the answer to that is no, in Christ, God's love is unconditional. And so you see, thinking about the covenant answers what's a really difficult question, right? I mean, how many of you have been tripped up by that question? When people push you from one side or the other, they tug and they pull. This answers the question. Yes? No. The covenant of works is not unconditional. Now, all of the covenants as a part of the covenant of grace are conditional with... A provision. This. They are unconditional and conditional because of asymmetrical synergism. Who remembers what asymmetrical means? Lobsided, right? What it means is there is a condition, God provides to fulfill the condition, and then we act. So that makes them all unconditional and conditional. They are all conditional but we do not fulfill the condition in ourselves. So my question is, within the covenant of grace, if they okay, look at Abraham and look at Moses, right? Right? Are they equally, those two, for example, are they equally as or... In terms of salvation, yes, absolutely. But we have to understand, what is revealed in these covenants is not different ways of salvation. In every covenant, salvation is found by faith in God's Messiah and His finished work. What is revealed in the covenant is different. So, for example, in Abraham, what is revealed is the universal nature of the covenant. All nations shall be blessed. What is more revealed is the promise. In the Mosaic covenant, what is more revealed is the law of God's kingdom and God's character. That doesn't mean it's not gracious, but... 98% 98% of what you read is law, because that's what God is choosing to emphasize. He's not replacing Abraham, he's adding to it. And then later on, in the Davidic covenant, he will then begin to explain and unfold the kingly or kingdom nature of the covenant. Doesn't undo law, doesn't undo the promise. It's a building. And so we cannot say one is more or less gracious or more or less unconditional. Because at their core, Moses, Noah, David, Abraham, Adam are all saved by faith in the work of God in His Messiah. Now, there's different aspects to that. We look back and we say, well, the Messiah was Jesus Christ, born of Mary, lived in Nazareth during the reigns of Caesar Augustus and Tiberius. David looks back and he has less revelation than us, but more than Moses. Moses has more revelation than Abraham does. So, they're looking at that Messiah through more or less fog, as it were. Does that make sense? Okay. So, the next thing that we want to remember is there is a unity to the covenant of grace. And it is a thematic unity first and foremost. It's a unity that we found in Ephesians 2.12. And that unity is found in this statement. To be a God to you and your offspring after you. You remember we traced this? It occurs in, in Genesis. In Exodus, this phrase. Genesis, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Samuel, the prophets, and the New Testament. And it is a big picture phrase. And you look at that and you say, well, wait, where's Jesus? Jesus is in there, isn't He? How can God be our God? If we're under the wrath of God, if we are separated from God, if there is a chasm between us and God, how can God be our God? Through the work of Jesus. Okay? Just because this doesn't say every single possible word that can be said, don't minimize the impact of this. The only way that God can be our God is through the work of Christ. We saw this in Abraham in Genesis 17 and in Moses in Exodus 6 and in Israel in 2 Samuel 7 and in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 8 and Revelation 1.5. It is the same in substance Greater and greater in Revelation. That's why in the passage we looked at this morning with Pastor Rankin, it says that Jesus is a better mediator or a mediator of a better covenant. And it is not completely different. It is more revealed. It is better for us. We can understand it better. Everybody with me so far? Here's a little picture for you to look at this. In terms of the story of the Bible, God has one purpose in history, and everything else rotates around that, as it were. It is the story of grace. And God reveals His glory in His grace to Adam, to Abraham, to Moses, and in the New Covenant in differing ways. Okay? Now, here is your example. How many people find it helpful when in the middle of a sermon the preacher gives an illustration? He says, well, you know what this is like? It's how many people find it? I find that helpful, right? This is a good example for you to hook onto and to share with others. The way the Bible works is not that we divide it up and not that we say, well, Moses said this, but David says the other thing. Well, Jesus is against Abraham here and Paul is against Peter here. That's not what we do. It is one story, but it is not always at the same level and volume. So when I was growing up, I'm going to date myself here. There was a movie in which there was a band where they had an amplifier. And they made a big deal because their amplifier was the only amplifier that went to 11. I know Some of you remember this movie. They said, everybody else only has 10. But we can go to 11. When you need that extra something, you can go to 11. Well, our amplifier in the Bible has all 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. And sometimes God speaks in threes. Sometimes He speaks in nines. Sometimes He speaks in, in a language that we wonder. Like that, that passage. You could go home tonight and shake your head over Hebrews 7 for about three or four hours. What does it mean? Without beginning, without end. Melchizedek. Sometimes we don't understand what God is saying clearly. And then there's other passages where you're like, of course, wow. And so the way we think about it is this. There is an organic unity to the way that God reveals Himself. So what we see at the end of the day in the covenant is the tree. There's a reason why I've chosen this illustration. What does Paul say the people of God are like in Romans 11? A tree. A tree. And he talks about people being broken off and grafted in. It is a tree. Well, sometimes we see that tree that Paul's talking about. Sometimes we see the acorn. And the acorn becomes the tree. It grows into it. And so that's what we need to understand. That's how the Bible works. The Bible is not a series of unrelated events that are tied together only by the presence of God. But there is rather one single way in which God deals with his people, in which he redeems sinners, and in which he manifests his glory. And so this will happen. You will be talking to a friend or listening to a radio show or seeing something on television, and someone will say something like this. Well, you know, in the Old Testament, Israelites were saved in this way. But now in the New Testament, we're saved in this other way. And you say, that's not my Bible. My Bible says there's one God, and He doesn't change. My Bible says there's one way of salvation. My Bible does say that there are are different ways in which God reveals that and makes it clearer or not. But there are not salvation by works in some spots and salvation by grace in other spots. It's one consistent story. Yes. And, and some will even make this two different trials with Adam and with Noah and with Abraham and with Moses and with David. And God keeps trying and failing until finally He hits on the right recipe. And so, you're right. I mean, they make God to be a failure and a liar. All of this is within the plan of God. And then lastly, the way the Bible shows this is just in greater clarity as it progresses. Like the bud becomes the flower. So don't let someone flatline your Bible for you either. There's a reason why it's very helpful for us to study the New Testament. Paul's passages are much clearer about the Gospel than Leviticus. The Gospel is in Leviticus but it's clearer in Galatians. Again, we think of it this way. There is a covenant of grace and it starts in Genesis 3 and proceeds to Genesis 17 to the Mosaic covenant in Exodus and to the new covenant in Matthew 26 and Hebrew 8. These are all aspects of one covenant of grace. Right? We can understand this. We live lives like this all the time. How many of you own a computer? How many of your computers have folders in them? How many of your computers have subfolders in them? That's what this is. Subfolders within a folder. It's all part of the same thing. They're they're distinct, right? But they're all part of that same unit. There's a lot of ways we could describe it, but that's the way it is. Now, remember, too, there is this progression. So... There, there is a movement that God is taking this forward. It's not just different aspects. It is a movement forward throughout redemptive history. There is a redemptive history that shows God's progress in His revelation. Alright, is everybody with me so far? Okay, so now what I want us to do is to move on to this week. And if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to Second Samuel 7. And we're going to look specifically at how the covenant with David describes and predicts what we will see fulfilled in the New Testament. So, there is a Davidic covenant. it's The covenant that God makes with David. And there is a, a context for this covenant. So, there is um, a desire that David has that he expresses to God. There is God's response to David. And then there is God's inauguration of this covenant. And then finally, the blessings of the covenant are described. This is kind of the outline of where we're going now to spend about 15 minutes discussing the Davidic covenant. Okay? Is everybody with me? I think too much linearly not to outline and organize things. I apologize. If you wanted random, you're out of luck. All right. So, let's start by thinking about the context. Remember, when we look at our Bibles, we can read passages, but they don't come out of nowhere. right? There is a history. There is a story. There are other chapters in which we have to take a look at this. And so, this passage is the culmination of Old Testament redemptive history. We see this in Psalm 78, verses 67 to 72, where the psalmist writes this, he, that is God, rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following, from following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. So what we have here is David does not become king by accident. You have to remember that David just doesn't show up and God say, "Well, I guess this is a guy who happens to be king. Let me see if I can make a covenant with him." No, God's at work well before then, bringing David to the kingship. In 1 Samuel, or excuse me, 2 Samuel 5, we see that the, finally the civil war with Saul had ended. Verse 3, So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So what we have here now is in the context of God talking with David, it's the culmination of history, the civil war that had broken Israel apart for a long period of time had just been ended, and David had just come in and gone to war and conquered Jerusalem. We see that in verses 6 and 7 of Second Samuel 5. And then what follows in the next chapter is the ark is then brought to Jerusalem. So do you see what's happening here? God is establishing His king. He is establishing His city. And He is establishing His presence in Jerusalem. All before this conversation takes place. And David, it says, is finally given rest from his enemies. In verse 1 of chapter 7, we see the following. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. So, if I can put it this way, this is the perfect setup, isn't it? This is like the best vacation you ever had after a really, really tough month at work, year at work. All of the difficulties that David had been through, he'd been on the run, Saul had been after him, the Philistines are at war with Israel. All of those things that had been going on, now God has put an end to, and now there is rest and peace. And so David shows us what kind of a man he is. You see, the temptation for David would be to say, I'm at rest. I'm at peace. I'm going to live it up. I'm going to get me a thousand wives. I'm going to get me as much money as I can get my hands on. I'm going to get me the best car I could possibly drive. And we know that happens, right? Because who did that? David's son Solomon, didn't he? But David looks at this from a different perspective. He says to Nathan the prophet, Look, I dwell in a house of cedar. Now, that means i got the nicest house in the whole kingdom. You have to remember, nobody lived in wooden houses. They lived in caves or in kind of ramshackle shacks or small buildings. He's saying, I have this gigantic, wonderful home. But God, his ark, it's in a tent over there. He's camping. That's not right. And Nathan says to the king, go Do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So, David has this overwhelming desire to serve God. It is the fruit of the blessing that God has given him, right? God's established everything, and David says, I want to serve the Lord. How does God respond? He responds in verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David. He begins now to inaugurate this covenant. I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. Psalm 78, right? And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Second Samuel 5 and 6. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all of these words, Nathan spoke to David. So let me boil Second Samuel 7 down for you. David says, Lord, you have blessed me. I want to serve you. I want to build you a house. And God's response is, You? Build me a house. You're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. A house that's eternal. A house that never goes away. A kingdom that lasts for all of eternity. Because I am God. I am in charge. And I want to bless you on top of the blessings that I have given you. And we see this in Psalm 89. This is a covenant that God makes with David. Look in 2 Samuel 7. Find me the word covenant in 2 Samuel 7. Can you find it? But the psalmist got his 3 a.m. call. He knew his elements of his covenant. Because he says, You said... I have made a covenant with My Chosen One. I have sworn to David My servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Wait a minute. Psalmist, you're quoting 2 Samuel 7. But God doesn't say I've made a covenant. What are you doing? You got your footnotes wrong. No. He's summarizing. He's saying what God has done in 2 Samuel 7 is He has laid out the elements of the covenant of grace. That God is blessing David in accordance with His covenant. And so He says, it's a covenant. And these blessings that come out are described in some detail. In verse 12, we see that one of David's flesh and blood will occupy the throne. And will occupy the throne forever. This heir will fulfill David's desire. This heir, in verse 14, an individual. I will be to whom? I will, verse 14, I will be to him. Does it say them? What does it say? How many people are him? One, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Okay? And so there is this sense in which he's speaking of Jesus as the collective, but also as the individual, because Jesus is the one who will fulfill this covenant. You know, if we think about it, how is David going to have an everlasting kingdom? How is he never going to lose someone to sit on the throne? How does that happen with people? It doesn't. It would take something like a miracle, like somehow God became a man to do that that's what it would take that's how god fulfills this covenant now do you see this here remember how we talked about the rolling out you remember in adam the genesis 3:15 the serpent the crush the heel okay that's not real clear right noah the covenant of creation and commencement And the rainbow, okay, we sort of get what's going on there. Abraham, well, there's a blessing to all the nations. What does that mean? How's God going to... What does it mean God's going to take the sacrifice? What is all this... Moses. How does... Here, God is saying, in only slightly veiled form, I will become man. And I will sit on the throne forever. And that is how I will fulfill it. Now... David does not see this text with the same clarity that we do, right? Why? Because we got the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of John and Paul's letter to the Romans, right? But it's the same word. But now we can look at it and say, wow, look at what God is doing here. So don't ever let anybody tell you, well, the Old Testament is a different God than the New Testament God. It's the same God. He's saying the same thing. What he's doing, though, is he's speaking at a different level. Many of you have kids, right? Some of you have kids that are in their teens. Do you talk to your 14-year-old the same way you talk to your 2-year-old? No. What do you do with a 2-year-old? You speak very simply, right? Bad. Hot. Don't touch. Sit down. Come here. Right? You try and do that with a teenager. Why? Explain it. What if I don't? You know, you have to have a federal register along with a command. Right? So, this is God revealing to us as we have a level to understand more and more. Yes? So remember, there are two things going on here. Jesus is not just an individual. He is also what? The representative of God's covenant people. So there are two things going on here. The first is, Jesus doesn't commit iniquity, does He? But what does 2 Corinthians 5.21 say? He who knew no sin, what? Became sin. Right? I will discipline him with the rod of men and with stripes. Does Jesus get stripes? And But we also see here that now this applies to us because do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Then you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, does that mean you stop sinning forever? There are people out there that will lie to you and say, yes, you can stop sinning. But your experience tells you otherwise, right? What happens when you sin? Do you lose your salvation? Does God throw you out of the family of God? What does He do? He intercedes and He disciplines like a father to a son. So if you are in Christ, you partake of this promise in verse 14. It's yours. Because every promise that's fulfilled in Christ belongs to the believer. You see... That's what thinking covenantally helps us to do. It helps us to think about Jesus as ours and we are His. And we're in this together. If I could put it that way. Because that's what God has designed. Now, we saw that with David. Now let's look at it a bit with New Testament eyes. A king. Who remembers the story from Matthew 21? What happens? Jesus Enters into Jerusalem. How does he enter into Jerusalem? On a colt, on a donkey. What do the people do? They hail him, right? That doesn't make sense to us, does it? Because like a couple days later they crucify him. And they're yelling crucify him. And we wonder and we say, what does that mean? And I think at best we say, oh, look at how fickle people are. They love him, then they hate him. That's our answer. That's not the Bible's answer. The reason he comes in to Jerusalem to praise and hail is because God is fulfilling his kingship role as the king of David. 1 Kings 1.33 says the following, And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule. That's what David says. And bring him down to Gion. You see, we think if Jesus were really a king, he'd be on a fancy white charger. Right? That's a cultural problem. The mule was the kingly vehicle. When Jesus comes in, he is being pronounced the Davidic king. He is fulfilling the covenant. And then, of course, that is why they are going to crucify him to fulfill that covenant. It's God working to fulfill His covenant. Peter in Acts 22 hits on all of these things. Peter comes and he does evangelism. Like we think about evangelism. Peter says to the people, you must believe on Jesus to be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead is basically what he says. He gives a good, old-fashioned, New Testament gospel message. Right? And it has effect. People are saved. But we can't lose in the middle of his sermon, especially verse 30, he says, being therefore a prophet, he's talking about David, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. Second Samuel 7. He foresaw and spoke about what? The resurrection of Christ, Peter says. Peter links 2 Samuel 7 and the resurrection. And Jesus on the throne eternally. Peter connects the dots for us. We don't even have to do it. Peter connects the dots. We see it in Paul's theology. That great letter to the Romans. In verse 3 he says, Concerning his Son, that is Christ, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see what Paul does there in one sentence? He links David and Christ and Lord in whom? Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. And then we see it most clearly in Hebrews chapter 1 because now they're they're revealing and explaining something that we've already seen. Jesus is in verse 3, the express image, the radiance of the glory of God. He's superior to the angels as we heard this morning. But in verse 5, for to which of the angels did God ever say, "You are my son; today I have begotten you?" Or again, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. Where does that language come from? Someone read for me 2 Samuel 7:14. Verse 5 in Hebrews 1 is almost a direct quote of the first half of 2 Samuel 7.14 that's repeated in Psalm 89. Okay, Do you see here? So this is the same story. What David is talking about, that's the acorn. That's the nut. That's the kernel. And then in Hebrews, it is blown up in full glory for us to see. This one who's Jesus, who's greater than the angels, who's come back from the dead, who is the mediator of the better covenant, that's the one who will sit on the throne. That's why the kingdom is eternal. There is a link here directly between old and new. Do we see that? But it's not just in 2 Samuel 7. You have to remember that the prophets are also the ones who describe these things. Now, I want to start just one minute aside for you to think about. When we think of prophets... The first thing that we usually think of is people who tell the future. Okay? I want you to understand that is not the primary job description of a prophet. The primary job description of a prophet is to be involved with God's covenant. And I love this because in addition to being a pastor, I'm a lawyer. And prophets are lawyers. They are prosecuting attorneys. They are God's prosecutors in the covenant to tell Israel that they have broken covenant and that they must repent. That's what every prophet does. I mean, they do predict the future, but every prophet tells Israel, you've wandered, you've broken covenant, you've left God, you've left the blessings. Look, there's curses right there. You deserve these curses. These curses are going to come raining down on you. That's what every prophet does. And we see this here especially in Jeremiah and Ezekiel as they then begin to describe to Israel what will come in the consummation of the covenant. They are wooing Israel to come back to God and come back to the covenant. So, again, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Jeremiah. Start with chapter 31. We have to understand that the context of Jeremiah talking about the New Covenant is one of judgment. Jeremiah 31, verse 27, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. And you want to hear, the days are coming when the New Covenant will come and I will bless His... No, the days are coming when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break them down, to overthrow, destroy, and to bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and plant, declares the Lord. So what he's saying is, this is the context of judgment. They have wandered and they have gone. And even in that context of judgment, God is still holding out mercy and blessing. Right? If we go back to our original definition of a covenant, what is a covenant? It is an agreement between two or more persons, right? Contracts are like this. We talked about this, right? How many of you know of businesses that when the other side's broken the contract, they come in and they say, you've broken the contract, now we're going to have to get recompense. We're going to sue you. Oh, but by the way, we're going to give you money. And we're going to give you workers. And we're going to bless you. Do people act like that? No. And certainly lawyers don't act like that, do they? No, we know that, right? But that's how God acts. In the middle of judgment, He says, I'm going to bring mercy and blessing. And so then Jeremiah then begins to speak of a new covenant. Now, this is unique language for the Old Testament, but it is not a unique concept. It is the same concept, but he is talking about it with new language to catch their attention. And so, for example, he hits on a familiar theme in verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write on their hearts. So this is the new covenant with Israel, which some people would have you think, is completely out of the blue. No one expects it. God starting from scratch. It's completely different. It's so different that it doesn't even apply to non-Jews. It's something that will come in the future just to Jews, brand new, except for there's only one problem. Finish reading verse 33. And I will be their God. And they will be My people. That's his brand new covenant. And I will be their God. And they will be my people. You know, kind of like he said to Moses. Kind of like he said to Abraham. Kind of like he said to the Israelites during their history. Remember, we had all those quotes. This is that theme running through. Jeremiah 31. This new covenant is a part of God's redemptive plan. It's right in the stream. It's a familiar theme. Well, what does this covenant look like? What is this new covenant? Well, first, look at verse 15 and 16 of verse 33. In this brand new covenant, what will happen is, in those days, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will be called secure... Dwell securely. This is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So what it will look like is a descendant of David will be reigning. What it also looks like is there will be a priesthood. Verse 18. And Levitical priests shall never lack a man in My presence to offer burnt offering. Grain offerings and make sacrifices forever. Does God lack priests now? Why? Yes. And why else? Even beyond that? All of us. God says, you know what? I'm not going to stay with just Levites. I'm going to make all y'all priests. And you see, it's the same concept, but it is bigger and better. Right? It's writ large. Yes, he does. That's what. That's correct. That's correct. He's the one doing it. The law will be written on our hearts. That's right, and that's also a messianic psalm. Jesus is the one who does this. So, what this new covenant looks like is there'll be a descendant of David. There will be a priesthood. The law will be written on our hearts, and God says, "I will be their God." They will all know me, Jeremiah says. Chapter 31, verse 34. And there will be the forgiveness of sins. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is what Jeremiah's new covenant looks like. And then finally, there is a certainty of the promise. God says, you could easier take the sun out of the sky and pluck the stars out from the sky than that my covenant would not come true. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 37, Ezekiel talks about a new covenant. What does Ezekiel's covenant look like in verse chapter 37? Specifically, we look at verses 15 to 28. For the sake of time, I'm going to be brief, but you can look at all of this. They'll be a descendant of David. They'll be a priesthood. Because Ezekiel says the temple's going to be rebuilt and there are going to be those to serve in the temple. Ezekiel says the law will be written on their heart. Ezekiel says I will be their God. Ezekiel says they will all know me. Ezekiel says there will be forgiveness of sins and there is a certainty of the promise. Short version, everything Jeremiah says. Ezekiel says. They're both talking about the same new covenant. So what we see here in Ezekiel 37 is a fulfillment, a progress that talks about David and then talks about Moses and then finally goes to the new covenant in verse 26. So we see here in verse 24 he says, "...My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd." What does this mean when Ezekiel writes David is dead? His bones are rotting. What does it mean? Go back to 2 Samuel 7. It's the one that will reign on David's throne, his descendant. Right? They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They'll do everything Moses told them. They'll fulfill that. And where will this be fulfilled? Verse 26. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. And then verse 27. Because people want you to read this and hear a new covenant and say, Well, you know, Israel came back to the promised land in 1948. And they got the land. And so the land's what's important here. And we have to understand God wanted Israel to have the land. And they go on and they go on and they go on. And they, on and they stop at verse 26. What does verse 27 say? Somebody read it loud. Ooh, sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's what the consummation is. That's what all of this is going to. The land, people, is gravy. It's a little bit of sugar in the tea. It's a little bit of butter to go on the bread. It is not the consummation of the covenant. The core of the covenant is, I will be their God, and they will be my people. It is an everlasting covenant. We see this here in Jeremiah 32. We see it in Jeremiah 50. We see it in Ezekiel 16. This covenant is everlasting. And so that reminds us of what God said to Noah. What kind of a covenant? Genesis 9. An everlasting covenant. It's what He said to Abraham, that He was making an everlasting covenant in Genesis 17. It's what He said in 2 Samuel 23, an everlasting covenant. That's what this covenant is. Isaiah 55, Isaiah 61. You can see all of this up on the... If you can't scribble down every reference, don't worry about it. It will be up on the website. But do you see this? Reference after reference after reference. They are all about an everlasting covenant. It is a covenant of peace. But, where this is then is fulfilled and realized in the new covenant. So, the Old Testament promise in Ezekiel 37 is that we would get life. Right? What's the story of Ezekiel 37? The dry bones. And what do the dry bones do? They live, right? That's fulfilled in John 3.8. Jesus brings life. And if that's not enough, there's a word picture. Who remembers what happens after Jesus is crucified? The people come out of the graves. The dead bones live in the consummation of the covenant. There's a promise of the land. You know, we talked about the land. The cities will be rebuilt, etc. And that fulfillment is found in the New Testament. Hebrews 4. Right? There is a fulfillment in that the land then that comes to us is not just a spot of dirt in the Middle East. It is the entirety of the world. The meek shall inherit what? The promised land? Israel? Part of Iraq? The earth. The blessing is greater than even the Old Testament saints thought. They thought they were getting a piece of land. They thought they were getting a little bit bigger piece of land. God says, No, you will inherit the earth, a new heavens and a new earth. You see, God doesn't change his mind. What God does is always consistently describe things in greater blessing and greater detail than we could possibly imagine. It's like we think, Well, you know, I want to eat something for dinner. Do you know what we're having? Yeah, I think we're having some kind of meat. Are you nuts? We're having steak. Oh, we're having some kind of ste- Are you nuts? We're having filet mignon. Oh, maybe I will stay for dinner. Right? God revealing this to us. Jerry. Uh, in, in regards to the land, I'm thinking. It's, it's the entirety of the universe, it's the organization of the universe. Alright, I gotta fly here because I got people looking in the windows. Here we go. Stay with me. The forgiveness of sins. We talked about this in Jeremiah 31. It's exactly what Paul. Yes, I do think Paul wrote Hebrews. It is exactly what Hebrews writes in chapter 10 that this covenant will have the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews is picking it off the page of Jeremiah 31. It's the same covenant. There is a realization of this. And we see this in Romans 11, in 2 Corinthians 6, in Galatians 3, and Ephesians 2. And it all has in common one thing. There is one purpose of God. There is one people of God. God has one people. There is one tree. Read Romans 11. There are not two trees. There is not a Jewish tree and a Gentile tree. There is one tree. One people of God. Sure. Amen. That's exactly right. And, and that fulfills the covenantal promise to Abraham was that through Abraham, who would be blessed? The Jews? All nations. You see, what God promised to Abraham, this is why we read the Bible. It's not just neat stories. What God promised to Abraham, you possess by faith in Christ. What God promised to David, you possess by faith in Christ. It is a part of one covenantal promise. Okay. Next week, we are going to take this way of covenantal thinking, which involves grace thinking, and we're going to begin to apply it in aspects of our lives. That's why the class is, God has a plan for every part of your life. We're going to start by looking at marriage. The week after that, we'll look at the family. We're going to look at the church. We're going to look at evangelism. We're going to look at worship. So, you have homework. I want you to read Hosea chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 7, and 2 Corinthians 6.